On a snowy day in March 1996, my mom drove to Hector International Airport, checked her sole suitcase, and got on a plane to China. Two weeks later, she would return with a six-month-old baby. But the journey begins long before this. She still remembers the day she decided to become a mother. It was the hottest day on record in Fargo, and I was at Barnes & Noble, and I happened across a magazine that was about adoption. And I picked it up, and there was an ad from China's Children, which is now Children's International. It just clicked, and so I contacted them, and they put me in touch with a caseworker here in North Dakota. We started right away with home study, and nine months from the day we started, I was in China picking up Annie. Annie is me, to clarify. As one of the few Chinese adoptees in my home state of North Dakota, I have struggled with navigating my identity. This podcast, Chinese Adoptees, Not Abandoned or Alone, explores this experience. This is the third and final episode. If you'd like to listen to the rest, please go to prairiepublic.org and search my name, Annie P.R.A. F-C-K-E. At 38 years old, my mom was ready to have kids. She had already traveled internationally, earned her master's degree, and built her career. So becoming a parent, even as a single woman, didn't faze her. Her only concern was my health, coming from an orphanage. You had bronchitis and double ear infections and... You coughed like a trooper, and it was scary because you were only six months old. Although she was confident in her parenting, she realized something inside you changes when you suddenly find yourself responsible for a child. The amount that you care and, and love a little person, you can't explain it. And I'd done all those things that, you know, in the... 70s, 80s, and early 90s, people said you were supposed to do and hadn't really been very fulfilled by that. So becoming a parent was something that filled a hole that I had. Even as an infant who had just met this woman, my mom noticed my attachment to her. She says I felt more comfortable being in her arms than anywhere else. I guess that's love. For the first couple of days, the only way you'd fall asleep was if I was holding you. We got to do a lot of bonding because you were so sick and we sat in the room for a lot of the time so that you could get well. There are a variety of reasons parents choose to adopt. Some, like my mom, are single parents who want a child. Others are same-sex couples. Some are told by doctors that pregnancy is not a viable option or they are past the age of childbearing when they decide to have kids. This was the case for Mary Jo, who is the mother of two young women who were adopted separately from China, Emily, now 20, and Eva, now 18. We heard from both of them in previous episodes. Before they decided to adopt abroad, 
Mary Jo and her husband John were considering domestic adoption, but it seemed like a slim chance that they would ever receive a child. I just remember the worst experience of all was sitting down in the the local adoption agency office and having them just plop down this huge binder that was probably two to three inches thick and explaining to us that we would get our profile in here and then we would just wait for someone to pick us. And I said, well, what if no one picks us? And they said, then you don't have a child. And I just thought, no, this is not going to work. Once Mary, Joe, and John began looking into international adoption, they reached out to a family friend in Fargo who had an adopted Chinese daughter. He spoke highly of transnational adoption from China. The couple decided to pursue it. The adoption process came with lots of paperwork and frustrating delays. Waiting to receive the first picture of their daughter in the mail created a special kind of holiday anticipation. It's Christmas Eve, when we first got the packet with Emily's picture and all her information, we had the car packed, ready to go to Fargo to celebrate Christmas with my parents and John's parents. And I was literally at the window waiting for the truck to drive by. And it finally came around the corner and drove right by the house. I drove all over and found the truck about six blocks away, just panicky. He looked in his truck. He had nothing. After several phone calls to FedEx, the couple finally received the package with Emily's photo the next day. It had been sent to Indianapolis by mistake. Despite these challenges, they held out hope for their future daughter, Emily. I had heard from other adoptive parents that when we received the picture of our daughter for the first time, we would, we would have that connection. It happened. We saw her picture, and I, we just fell in love with her immediately. The whole process took about two years, but the time finally came for Mary Jo and John to go to China to meet their child. The couple traveled in a group with other prospective adoptive parents. On the day they were to receive Emily, everyone was told to meet the orphanage staff at a hotel. But when they got there, they found the process of finding their daughter was not so straightforward. All of these caregivers and babies came out at the same time, and it was chaos. Instead of the caretakers handing the infants to their new mothers and fathers, the parents were expected to locate their child in a crowded room based on one photo they had received months ago. As you may imagine, this caused some confusion. We had her picture. We know what she looked like. We had her name. But there was no matching going on. So we had to basically find her. And there was another baby whose Chinese name was so close to Emily's Emily's name was Fung, and this baby's name was Feng. And this other mom of the other baby came to me with her actual baby and said, I think this is your Emily. And they looked similar as babies, but I didn't think it was her. And I didn't take her in my arms. I didn't hold her. And I just I just asked, okay, is her name Fung? And they said, Fung, Feng. 
And I just said, I don't think this is Emily. It turns out that Mary Jo's instincts were correct. That baby was not Emily. Thankfully, she soon found her daughter amidst the crowd. I looked at her right away and I knew this was Emily. When they returned to the United States with Emily in arms, Mary Jo says family and friends welcomed them. I think most of them were at the airport when we came home. It was wonderful. Our neighbors, too, the people we worked with, they had we had a lot of baby showers. Everybody was just so excited for us. The people closest to the Savageos followed the adoption process for both of their daughters, Emily and Eva, who was adopted two years later. However, intercountry adoption was not something everyone in North Dakota was familiar with, especially in the early 2000s. According to the Department of State, in 2002, the year Emily was brought to Bismarck, only 18 total intercountry adoptions occurred in the entire state of North Dakota. By comparison, in that same year, South Dakota had 42 intercountry adoptions, and Montana had 41. In 2004, the year Eva was brought to Bismarck, North Dakota had 25 intercountry adoptions, whereas South Dakota had 48, and Montana had 62. Mary Jo recalls that people in Bismarck weren't as used to seeing Chinese adoptees in a Caucasian family as they might be today. She remembers getting some confused stares when she would go out with her husband and kids. I remember people almost doing double takes like looking at me, looking at the babies, looking back at me, looking at John, like where is the connection? Where is the Chinese? Mary Jo says that in most cases, she doesn't think the stares were malicious. She believes people were just not used to seeing biracial families, and they were curious. While the reception was mostly positive, Mary Jo recalls that not everyone treated their Chinese daughters the way they would treat a white U.S.-born child. We had one neighbor who was actually afraid to be near Eva because she just said, well, has she had her shots? And, and I was just taken aback by that. Like, well, what do you, what do you think that she would be, like she would be carrying something? As the white parent of Asian children, it can also be difficult to navigate issues of race and identity that inevitably arise. Mary Jo says her daughters didn't talk to her much about racism as adolescents. She says she did everything she could to validate their identities. But she recognizes that being a person of color is something she'll never fully understand. Another thing that both of your daughters brought up was at some point during their childhood wishing that they were white. Is that something they ever talked about with you? No. <laughs> they didn't. We have tried very hard to instill pride in their native country and we love China. We just we just love the culture and the heritage and we just, you know, we tried so many ways to build them up and not feel like 
they should be ashamed of anything, whether it's their hair or their face or their eyes or anything. It's, I mean, everybody's different and they should, I mean, we just tried to tell them you should just, just be very proud of who you are and where you come from. Actually living that is, I'm sure it's just more difficult. If you're just now joining us, I'm Annie Prafke, and this is the third episode of my podcast, North Dakotan Chinese Adoptees, Not Abandoned or Alone, in which I explore issues of race, identity, and family with other women who share my identity as a Chinese adoptee. If you'd like to listen to the rest of the series, please visit prairiepublic.org and search my name, Annie P-R-A-F-C-K-E. Dr. Andrea Louie is an anthropology professor and the founding director of the Asian Pacific American Studies Program at Michigan State University. She is also the author of the book, How Chinese Are You? Adopted Chinese Youth and Their Families Negotiate Identity and Culture. Dr. Louie explains that during the earlier years of international Asian adoption, following the Korean War, white American adoptive parents were often advised to downplay their children's birth culture and their racial difference. The idea was to assimilate them to the U.S. For, for the earlier generations of, of adoptees, particularly from Korea, right, because it started earlier, um, there was this colorblind approach, and that reflected broader ideas in the United States about diversity and multiculturalism, right, and the idea that, you know, if you don't see color, then you're not being racist somehow, even though that's almost the opposite effect, right? To ignore somebody's difference and to say, you know, we think of you just as our daughter, not as a Chinese person or something like that is not recognizing who they are. Professor Louie says by the time she was researching Chinese adoption in the early 2000s, adoptive parents were more commonly encouraged to celebrate their children's birth culture. However, she warns that merely upholding culture without addressing race and racism, ignores a major part of the experience many adopted kids face as racial minorities. There was a shift to an emphasis on the Chinese origins of children adopted from China, both by adoption agencies and by the Chinese government. Parents were actually asked as part of the adoption process whether they will honor their children's heritage. And part of the process of adoption involved parents going to China, meeting their children, and while paperwork was being processed, visiting local cultural sites. The reason behind this right, was to help the parents appreciate Chinese culture and understand it a little bit better. But even this focus on culture and honoring culture doesn't address race and, and the identity issues that, that relate to just focusing on culture as something to celebrate as opposed to culture as being attached to also a racialized identity, right, as a minority in the U.S. While Mary, Joe, and John did their best to immerse themselves in Chinese culture during the adoptions of both of their girls, it didn't necessarily prepare them for having difficult conversations about the realities of what it's like to be Chinese-American. You know, we tried to ask questions, you know, are people treating you well? Are they teasing you? And we'd get, we'd get some acknowledgement of that, but not a lot of details. 
I think there was that the coming of age time when you look in the mirror and realize I really do look different. I really am different. Some of their struggles they went through maybe weren't just normal teen struggles. They were more identity struggles as an Asian in a Caucasian world. As adopted children get older, it is not uncommon for them to ask questions about their origins and their birth families. But at times, it can be difficult for adoptive parents to think about their kids belonging to anyone else. I think my greatest fear was having a birth mother come back and say, I want my baby back. China's one-child policy forced parents into difficult decisions as it limited the number of children a family could have. Because of this, Mary Jo says she has insecurities that her children's biological parents may have had a different vision of the future for them, or they may not have wanted to give them up in the first place. Do you think there'd be any part, if you did meet birth parents, that would still be a little bit upsetting or just hesitations about meeting a birth family? There's always the fear, I guess, of feeling like we did something wrong. We took them away from somebody that they didn't, that maybe the birth parents didn't, didn't want this, or maybe they wouldn't have wanted them to be with us or in the United States. The one child policy had devastating effects on some families. But her views on one day meeting Emily and Eva's birth parents have changed over time. You know, after all these years with with our girls, I now realize the greatest gift I could give them would be the gift of knowing who their birth parents were. I think overall I've I've had almost this I mean, the full growing up with them. And I'm just more confident now in who they are and who I am as a mother that I think meeting their birth parents would in the end be just extremely rewarding, not just for them, but for me. As a kid, there were so many times when I wanted to be normal, which, to me, meant that I would be white, with a family that looked like me. I would also have been born in an American hospital, and know my time of birth. There would be no mysteries about how I got here, or why my parents didn't keep me. I now know that I was not the only one who had these insecurities. If I had talked to other Asian adoptees, including my own sister, about what I was going through, I might have taken comfort in knowing I was not alone. I am recording this just weeks after the Atlanta spa shootings, which left eight people, including six Asian women, dead. Hearing the news was horrific and scary, and honestly, I'm still processing it. 
but as discussions of anti-Asian discrimination open up, I finally feel like Asian people are speaking out about experiences that in many ways reflect mine. And people are actually listening. I think that is what I truly craved in those moments of childhood insecurity. To feel empowered to talk about it and be heard. I hope that moving forward, we will continue to have these difficult, but revealing conversations about race, identity, and family. It's time, I believe, to take pride in who we are and to challenge what it means to be Asian, to be adopted, to be North Dakotan, to be American, and to be all at once. This podcast was script edited by Ashley Thornburg and produced by me, Annie Prafke. Special thanks to Bill Thomas for production assistance, Eric Dotheridge for music assistance, and Lily Hanaher for answering all of my editing questions. Thank you also to Dr. Andrea Louie for sharing her knowledge and expertise, as well as to those who shared their stories with me, including the Savageau family and my sister Ellie. The full three-part series can be found at prairiepublic.org by searching my name, Annie Prafke. That's Annie, P-R-A-F-C-K-E.